since we have a lot of entrepreneurs, innovators, scientists who want to innovate in the space of healthcare 3D printing and bioprinting and related fields, I thought it's pretty helpful to invite two, in my opinion, very successful entrepreneurs to discuss their journeys. Um, both Mike and Tamar are probably well known to many of you guys. Uh, they're into different, uh, I would say relatively related companies, bioprinting companies, but different stage of funding. Uh, um, so first, I would just like to introduce Tamar Mohammed. He is the CEO and founder of Aspect Biosystems. And Mike Grafio, he is the CEO of Fluidform. Um, and so first, um, I would like to just ask you guys to kind of quickly introduce what your company does and, and who you are, basically. So I'll start with Tamar. Absolutely. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Jenny, um, for organizing this and then for bringing the entire kind of community together uh, during these times. So looking forward to a, a good discussion here. Uh, so I'm Tamar Mohammed, um, CEO of Aspect. Um, so my background is actually on the bioengineering uh, side. Uh, and so my previous uh, life uh, before Aspect was started uh, was developing uh, 3D printing technology with a focus on uh, marrying that with the biological world uh, out of UBC in, in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, and so spent several years doing that as, as a researcher uh, and then um, kind of took on a, a different path uh, around kind of commercializing the technology. Uh, and that has been my life uh, really the past uh, five, five to six years. And so kind of my story is one of a kind of engineer turned kind of entrepreneur trying to really make uh, make an impact with uh, with the technology and uh, really great kind of to see the uh, the community kind of grow to where it is now compared to uh, where it was when I first started. And what stages are company, Tamar, just t talk, talk a little bit about the company itself and what does it do? Yeah, so uh, Aspect uh, is a company that is uh, developing uh, therapeutics using our technology. And, and so we do that internally uh, at, at the company, uh, but we also partner with uh, large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and also uh, we work very closely with academic researchers. Uh, so some of our partners uh, include Glasgow Smith Klein, uh, Merck, uh, JSR. Uh, we partnered with companies uh, uh, like uh, AstraZeneca and Genentech and, and others. Uh, and so we work uh, to apply our microfluidic 3D printing technology uh, to some of the toughest problems in, in regenerative medicine and, and therapeutic discovery. Uh, like I said, the company has been around for about five years. Uh, the first couple of years we were incubated at UBC uh, and in 2016 we uh, uh, really emerged uh, commercially, uh, set up our own uh, dedicated facilities uh, where we integrate all the different uh, functions of uh, the company. Uh, we're a venture-backed Series A stage uh, company, so we uh, recently closed our Series A in, in January uh, for about $26 million. Uh, to date, we've, uh, we've raised over $45 million in, in, in capital that we're using to really advance the company. Uh, so in terms of company size, uh, we're about uh, 45 uh, people now uh, when you include everybody, uh, but we're uh, rapidly kind of expanding, so we're uh, looking for great scientists, uh, engineers, business professionals. Uh, so please uh, uh, reach out if, if you're interested and, and, and come join uh, our journey. That's awesome, Tamara. By the way, we have a job posting board and uh, there are quite a few people actually are looking for jobs. Uh, we, may, we may be able to send some, some of the information to you if you're looking to hire. And, and then uh, let's go to Mike. Mike, you wanna tell us a little bit about the story of your company? 
Sure, sure. Uh, you know, fluid form is uh, the world leader in 3D printing of collagen and other native biomaterials uh, based on a technology that was licensed out of Carnegie Mellon called Fresh, which allows you to 3D print native materials without modifying them and maintaining all sorts of intricate geometry, uh, as well as controlling, you know, curing chemistry. Uh, fluid form's been in existence for uh, just shy of two years. Uh, we raised a seed round and uh, our seed stage venture backed company. Uh, we're a little bit behind uh, the folks at Aspect, uh, both from a, a time in existence as well as a funding raise. But, uh, you know, we have aspirations to, uh, to join them in the uh, pantheon of companies that are able to raise that kind of money and, uh, and grow to that size. We're, we're a team of nine. Uh, we are a commercial company. We've got our first product on the market, which was launched yet last year in um, the second half of the year. It's called Life Support, which allows biomedical researchers to do fresh printing on their existing bioprinting hardware. And we're rapidly expanding into a number of other areas to uh, capitalize on the promise of being able to print these biomaterials into shapes and sizes for uh, you know, biomedical research, for med device and hospital markets, and ultimately towards tissue and organs. Uh, my background, I was trained as an engineer uh, a long time ago. I've spent most of commercializing novel medical technology. I spent a very short time as an engineer. Uh, most of my time, most of my career has been in sales and marketing and business development. Uh, I led a large business unit at a mid-cap publicly traded company and I uh, spent about six years in startups prior to that. Thanks, Mike. Well, I think the structure of this uh, fire chat today is I'm going to go ahead and ask a couple questions from my end, uh, but I'll save some majority of the time to the audience as well. So audience, please do enter your question in the Q&A box. We're not going to have a lot of time to allow individuals to raise their hand and actually talk on the speaker just because of time issues. Um, so please enter your questions now. Uh, so I have a lot of questions for you guys, as you know. Uh, so I'm going to start, I always like to start chronologically because it's always kind of interesting to see how things got started. This morning, we had a really good keynote from Dr. Alan Dan, and he's also a startup founder. And, uh, you know, part of the story, he started a company is over sushi. Um, so how did you guys conceive the idea of your current company? I mean, just because you found something in the lab doesn't mess, you make it a good business idea. And also, starting a business has a lot of risk. So I'll, I will just hear that story. Um, how did you decide that is the idea you're going to start a company on, and what drives you there? Yeah, happy, maybe happy to jump in here. Um, so maybe kind of taking uh, us back kind of a few years to kind of how Aspect kind of started. Uh, uh, so we were kind of born out of uh, academic research. I think... Uh, universities are in a very very unique kind of position to launch these these types of companies i think we could all agree that uh probably the future company that is going to implant uh uh some of the most advanced kind of uh, tissues in, in the body those those companies probably don't start out of garages uh like uh like the uh, uh the apples of the world and and and, and others um i think uh th there are certainly those types of companies but there are others that require uh, really kind of basic scientific kind of research and, and years of uh, refinement and, and kind of deep discovery. So I think universities are in a unique kind of position. And so I think if you could combine that kind of deep academic research with um, the right support from, from an academic institution, all the way from kind of tech transfer to uh, kind of seed capital that the university kind of uh, could, could provide to, to even incubating 
uh, a company at its most kind of sensitive early years. I think all of those are um, very important considerations to kind of unlock the, the that unique potential that I think exists at uh, universities. And so uh, Aspect is, is an example of that. Um, uh, I think uh, we, we were one of the first to publish uh, at university uh, at, at the University of British Columbia, actually, in, uh, and actually one of the first to publish in the world around printing with cells way back in 2006, uh, and then uh, got a, a large federal uh, funded research program to explore the use of microfluidics with 3D printing. Uh, we felt that really kind of gave us uh, the necessary kind of capabilities to take it on. Uh, and then the next path uh, for us was this entrepreneurial kind of journey. And so our university was uh, very, very supportive uh, of us um, all the way, like I said, from uh, transferring intellectual property to providing us with that first check in the door to file that those first uh, uh, pieces of uh, intellectual property through patents. Uh, and then we were really off uh, off to the races. So, so Aspect Story is one of uh, um, starting off with deep innovation uh, that I think is uniquely enabled at universities, but uh, also having an extremely supportive uh, uh, academic institution that uh, that really kind of wanted to back us and and uh, allow us to kind of thrive in the university setting until we were ready to kind of get out to the to the real world so that we could start to make an impact uh, uh, hopefully one day on patients. Now, just one quick follow-up question, Tamar. Um, I mean, we 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 address how the university is supportive to get you started, but. You mentioned many years ago when you did a written interview with us that, you know, Elon Musk said of something about entrepreneurship is like eating glass. What made you decide to go on this journey of eating glass? Uh, I mean, later on, Mike can also address that question too. Yeah, what you I would stop going to academia. Just that. Yeah, you know? yeah I, I would say it, it's, it's probably better that I didn't know what, what, what the path uh, was that I was getting myself kind of into. And, and so I think uh, a, a part of hopefully my discussion today will, will not focus on all of the difficulties because I, I think you have to be naive uh, to, to really give this a shot. Um, um, and that's not just in, in entrepreneurship, but if, if you actually look at some of the most craziest things that were ever attempted, they're usually done by uh, mostly kind of young, naive, inexperienced people. If, if you look at the average age of uh, the people who landed on the moon, um, it was actually in their 20s. Uh, I think the, the people in mission control uh, actually uh, uh, controlling that, that mission and making sure they arrived safely were a few years even younger in terms of average years. And so I think uh, you have to be a little bit naive, a little bit crazy, and uh, the, the less you know about kind of the, the roller coaster that you're getting into, it's, it's probably better. Uh, but I think it's just a ton of work, <laughs> uh, a lot of hard work. And, and so uh, I, uh, I think... Uh, that's probably the one thing that I, I think uh, you're almost guaranteed to kind of see, but it's it's definitely fulfilling and and in its own special way. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, let's let's hear um, out of the story here. Sure, you know, as a um, as a repeat offender in the startup world, I think that uh, I would agree that there's a a level of. Uh, thinking differently required. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I hope that naivete isn't important because I didn't know what I was getting into when I started this, but um, I think there's a level of, uh, in any startup venture, you, ha you have to know that there's so much you don't know, you can't know, and you have to find a way to be comfortable with that, right? So um, if you thrive on certainty, steadiness, predictability, this is not the arena for that kind of uh, venture. My story is a little bit different. Uh, fluid form as a concept uh, was being uh, 
you know, strategized before I sort of hooked up with the, my co-founders. So the team at Carnegie Mellon had been working on this technology for six, seven years before uh, the group of the five of us really started talking about how we wanted to put things together. Um, my co-founder, Adam Feinberg, professor at the lab there, he and I have known each other for 20 odd years. And uh, I was in a place where I was looking at a lot of different startups and wanting to see who I could help and how. And I met Adam and the team uh, to see where their business plan was at and how things might work out. And you know, it turned out we had a really good, um, good synergy. Each of us sort of brought different things to the table. And that's one of the things that I can't emphasize enough about you know, when you're thinking about starting a company is understanding that it's gonna take a lot of different strengths in order to overcome all the different hurdles that are gonna get in your way. So having a team with a, a diverse set of things that they're good at, uh, a diverse set of strengths, diverse set of perspectives is critical. And that was something that, uh, that really helped make things happen for us. Um, in terms of, you know, why startups, I mean, I've been in very, very small companies, I've been in very, very large companies and, and pretty much everything in between. Um, and to me, you know, it's my, my, my heart just kept coming back to uh, the early days and the small startup uh, feel, which is that anything's possible. You're not really sure where things are going to go. There's a lot of signals you get to pick up on coming to you from all direction. You get to sort through the noise. There's a, there's a heavy strategy component. There's a heavy execution component. And, and it's all on a very small team. So you're kind of all in it together. And there's really nothing like that feeling. Yeah, feels like sometimes driving a, a single engine plan by yourself. Um, well, maybe with a team. <laughs> uh, Kate, let's go to the audience. We have a, a quite a few questions here. Do you have anything over there? Yep. Um, first one, I'll kind of go with what uh, Mike was talking about is finding your good team. And do you know of any resources or good websites where you can find co-founders that have a strong technical background? Um, sorry, technical scientific background. Well, you know, my experience was that, you know, with the technology came the technologists, right? So for us with Fluidform, the the folks who developed that technology were the ones ideally positioned to be from a technical background co-founding with. There's nobody I would rather be working with than the people who had spent five, six, seven years doing PhDs and master's work and so on, uh, getting that technology shaped up, up to where it was. Um, for somebody with an idea who hasn't developed that, that sort of thing yet, um, what I can say is, you know, the academic community is such a vibrant, robust source of talent, uh, whether that's at local universities, whether that's traveling to, you know, destination universities, uh, tech transfer offices always sort of have a good handle on who's interested in, you know, the startup ecosystem and whatnot. I mean, if you're, if there's students, uh, who are interested in startups, they're often collaborating through tech transfer offices with business schools and all the rest of it. So they kind of know, and that would be the first place I would go to look. That's a good idea. Thanks. Yeah, and also I want to add that we could add a uh, community board on Whova and to say who is looking for a co-founder. And maybe you guys can meet there. Just a thought. Go ahead, Kate. Uh, um, another one that's kind of talking about getting your startup kind of separated from the university. This is kind of something, Tamara, you touched on but how do you talk about like the process of licensing your technology from the university like if it was developed in the university and the ip is kind of connected how do you make that kind of break yeah yeah so uh, it it obviously kind of depends on on, on the university itself uh, every university has has their own policy and, and so i think 
uh, if, if you've come up with an innovation at, at university, I think uh, you really need to get kind of familiar with what policies kind of exist. Um, in terms of my kind of uh, opinion, uh, I'm obviously of the opinion that kind of the universities could, could only benefit if, if they let kind of ambitious scientific kind of entrepreneurs go out and build great companies and, and uh, they will obviously remember these, uh, their, their kind of beginnings and, and they'll obviously give back um, uh, to, to the universities uh, in, in donations and whatnot, way more than sort of uh, royalties via, via licensing. That's, that's my philosophy, obviously. And, and so a lot of universities do that. Some universities don't do that. Um, but I, I guess my advice would be, uh, irrespective of what policy your university has, um, I would say figure out what you need to build the company in terms of, for example, what your investors want to see from a licensing deal or, or whether that's an assignment or just figure out what you absolutely need and, and don't spend too much time there. Um, I would say don't o try to over-optimize the, the transaction because those, those, uh, those uh, early days are so critical, I, I think. Uh, your your company's probably not going to fail because you got like a really bad licensing deal. It's like it it, it it might fail for other reasons. And so I would just say, don't try to over optimize the deal as long as it makes sense. As long as you have what you need to kind of go raise your first uh, round of investment and and you're incentivized enough. Uh, if this is ultimately kind of a success, I would just uh, get what you need and and hopefully bring the university with you to kind of back you and, and support you. And and hopefully if you have a good transfer office, um, they hopefully will understand that. Oh, that's really good to kind of focus on the main picture. Um, kind of a follow-up. Yep. Can you um, give these people who are asking questions a, a shout-out? Sorry, I had said the first one. Um, the first one was Todd. The second one, sorry, was Stephanie Willer. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one is from an anonymous attendee. Um, it's kind of a follow-up to what Tamara said, but also Mike also has some good insights, I'm sure. For an early stage researcher, kind of what is the best way to establish a company enough for a seed round? Um, especially if like bootstrapping is not an option, maybe because of financial or other resources are limited. Do you have any kind of tips for the first one? Yeah, maybe I, I could kind of dive into it. I, I think uh, uh, probably the best advice is make sure you have a really, really good, good team because at that seed stage, uh, if, if you're looking at angels or even some early stage VCs, I think the team is, is first and foremost the most important thing that they, they, uh, they'll they look into because um, they've been around the block long enough, uh, hopefully, uh, if you're choosing them as investors, uh, to, to know that um, your your business plan or that you come up with originally is probably not going to be the long-term plan and um, it's probably going to change and, you're, and they're depending on you to kind of maneuver and so they're really kind of backing you. So again, to that other person's question about co-founding team. I think that's absolutely essential. Uh, and then the, the next few things I, I think involve really, uh, I would say, uh, trying to focus on uh, on problems that are worth kind of solving and, and spending more time kind of on, on kind of the problem, um, making sure that, um, that, that it is a problem, uh, number one, that, like I said, you're, is worth solving and your team is capable of solving it. And then like really understanding kind of the solution and, and making sure that you provide a unique solution and it could scale. Um, and then making sure obviously your team kind of could execute. So I think if you could package that into a story that's a mix of facts in terms of this is hard data plus a vision, because uh, you need a vision, like entrepreneurs are somewhat artists. You, you're not, it's not just pure science. You have to have a mix of science and you have to really kind of sculpt a vision. Uh, if you could do that, I think, um, 
I, I think the, the 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 dirty secret out there is there's way more money than good ideas. Uh, and so you'll if if you could kind of refine that story, um, I think you'll find capital. Great, Mike. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, I think in the um, in the earliest days of of putting a company together and attempting to to kind of pull together some capital and and make a go of it, um, you know, one of the things that's really really hard for for entrepreneurs to get a perspective on is that you're going to go out there and you're going to tell your story. And you're going to get a lot of no's because that's just the nature of this game. This is a low percentage game, right? So um, being able to discern between when a no is just a bad fit for a particular investor, either because they don't understand what you're doing or it's not an area of focus for them versus when a no is a signal that your story is not very good, right? And you're going to get a lot of no's of both kinds. And I think it's one of those areas that a lot of early stage founders that I talk to, you know, every no is either taken personally or it's a signal that I've got to change the whole story over again. And sometimes a no is a signal that you need to work on your story, but sometimes it's just not the right fit with that particular investor. Uh, and I think that's something that is you know, really underappreciated when you're getting started. No, it's great, both of you. Like finding the proper story and then finding whether or not you need to change or find somebody else that's going to believe in your, your story. Uh, we have one more uh, question from the audience from John Charles Neal. Um, this is more directed for Mike, and it's asking about if you're using fresh to print with native proteins as raw material, what are the recommended tools to predict the macroscopic properties of the resulting print? So instead of, you know, using collagen as a source material, how are you going to see how that's going to be? Well, you know, my, the start of my answer is please contact us offline through fluidform3d.com because my co-founders and technical team are infinitely better qualified to answer that question than I am. Uh, they've done PhD theses on this and done, you know, just decades cumulatively worth of work on it. Uh, but what I can say is that, um, you know, fresh is the first technique that means that you have no limits to what you're trying to print, right? Any geometry, any shape, any size with any biomaterial. And that's something that, um, that means that answering a question like that means we've got to get into a lot more detail on what's the specifics of what you're trying to print and how do we want to actually set up the gelation mechanics of the bioink you're working with? How do we want to make sure that the layers are going to set up just right? Are you looking to, to cellularize that construct? Are you looking to create vascularity or not? Each one of those is going to affect the answer to that. Thanks. Um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and then go back to one of the topics that we have already discussed a little bit, um, but I just want to consolidate it. Uh, one question is about team building. Um, I know Mike's team fairly well. I also know Tamer's team fairly well, and Tamer's team has been around forever, basically, you know, which both teams I, I see as very successful. Um, do you guys have some kind of litmus test to figure out whether or not one person is going to fit in? This morning we had a keynote from, again, uh, Dr. Dan talking about his team as a diversity and Mike you also mentioned that you have people with different backgrounds and they mix well but sometimes when people are really different it's kind of hard to mix so I'm just curious how did you guys build one person at a time to make sure they work for your team? Tamer let's start with you. Yeah, happy to share some some thoughts. Oh, I, I think uh, you touched on diversity. Um, I think uh, it's pretty clear um, that like to, to tackle some of the problems we're talking about in this conference, you, you really need 
a variety of different kind of like technical backgrounds and and obviously even kind of philosophical like um, people coming from different parts of the world and, and and backgrounds. I think that's all great. That's all important for sure. Um, in terms of kind of your, the second part of your question, kind of litmus litmus test, I would say, I mean, something I look for a lot uh, is um, making sure that somebody. And no matter what they were involved in, could be even personal or professional, that that they managed to kind of persevere and, and kind of taste success. And because um, it's very rare that you're going to hire somebody to work on an exact problem that they've worked on kind of before, uh, unless you're hiring like a specialist, and that's a different kind of assessment criteria. But uh, you just want to uh, have confidence that people uh, are capable of solving a variety of different problems. And and um, the uh, the other kind of thing I, I look kind of deeply into, and now I'm giving all my secrets up, but that, one of the other things I, I, I look into is, is just adding kind of clarity. Uh, you want to have conversations with people who add clarity because uh, um, it's very, very easy kind of to be, I would say, kind of the pessimist in the room uh, and just pick out problems in every solution. So those people tend to sound smart, uh, but it's actually the people, the optimists that go out and find kind of a solution uh, in every problem that actually end up kind of uh, uh, figuring things out. And so I think uh, it's really important to, to have conversations with people who bring kind of clarity uh, to the table, who bring kind of uh, optimism, even a bit of naivety. Uh, we were talking about the, the importance of that. Um, yeah, uh, and just people you want to go on a mission with. Uh, if, if you're going to battle, who do you want to bring with you? Uh, those are all things kind of we look, look for. Or even a hike. I would like to. Yeah, well, I guess a hike. I could work as well. There are many good places to hike in British Columbia, so that analogy works. <laughs> yeah, I think you know. I would echo uh, a lot of what you said there. I think that there's, um, you know, the, the ability to sound smart by putting down ideas is um, is overvalued in work culture at large, and it's uh, extremely unhelpful in a startup environment. And I think that that's something that is. Um, uh, a lot of people miss that because they get enamored by, wow, listen to how smart that person is. Um, for us, you know, one of the things that I, I really think is, is mission critical is, you know, we have to start uh, first and foremost with what our values are. Where are we going? Who are we? What are we all about? And we put that out there front and center and live it and share it with people because they're not, you know, it's not something that is just sort of like up on a wall and we don't talk about it very much. Um, we have to live that and we have to, to hold it up for people to say, by the way, if this isn't you, that's fine. No judgment, but this is what we are, right? So we, we hold it up as almost a magnet, right? It's going to either attract or repel, but it's not going to be neutral. And I think that's really, really important, having values that are very, very deep and core to a particular uh, institution. Um, the other piece, though, I think that's mission critical is um, the idea of building trust in an environment. Because... Uh, when you have an environment where everybody knows that, hey, we're all in this together, we all have each other's back, and we're not always all going to agree, you then have the groundwork laid to have disparate opinions brought up that are going to be critical to actually getting really good answers out. Um, I, I, I love Ben Horowitz's framework in his recent book on the idea of culture, saying that culture is always being built. You're either doing it on purpose or it's happening by accident. And when it's happening by accident, good things are very rarely happening. So you like keeping guardian at the gate of how the culture is being built and why is super critical. Um, and I find that that to me is the is the best litmus test, right? Is um, 
you know, Simon Sinek talks about in his uh, Navy SEALs performance trust access, right? What's the a-hole rule, right? Is if everybody walks in, you walk into a room and say, who's the a-hole? And everybody will point at the same room. Well, our goal is to try to figure out how we don't hire that person in the first place. Well, thank you, Mike and Tamara. I think you were up uh, on time, but uh, learned a lot from this conversation. And for those people who want to uh, reach out to Tamara um, and Mike uh, for jobs, I think they're open. Both are growing rapidly, quote unquote. So um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and I'll see you some other time soon. Oh, actually, next session is coming up. Sorry, my head is going flat. <laughs> Sounds good, Jenny. Oh, Thanks so much. Thank you, Thanks, everyone. Thank you so long. Bye. <laughs>